Welcome to the podcast. My name is Bruce Mole, and I'm joined today by, by my colleagues Michael Jonas, hey Bruce, and Jack Sullivan. Yo. We're offering you a preview of our winter issue, which goes out in the mail and will be available on our website tomorrow. Two of the features in this issue focus on apps and the impacts, sometimes unexpected, these apps have. Let's start with you, Jack, and your story on Airbnb. I don't know how unexpected uh, the result is, except to the people who regulate. And I think that's the, the key. I think people... Um, with Airbnb realized that they came into an area, uh, and, and they pretty much do this everywhere, um, that had no regulations, that, that wasn't expecting um, to have the type of impact that Airbnb had when they came in here. So they pretty much had a, uh, a clear field uh, in order to expand the way that they've expanded. The whole idea behind Air, Airbnb, I think, when they first started, and um, you, you see this in their... Uh, uh, literature and on their websites was, you know, to to let mom and pop rent out the back room when Junior moves out of the house, um, or if if they have a uh, uh, a second home down the Cape or something like that, to be able to uh, rent it out and and make a little extra money, you know, put some money into the retirement account or uh, uh, pay off the mortgage a little bit quicker. Um, but what what I found anyway, and I think what happened, what's been happening in other uh, communities is that Airbnb has expanded to, to become this commercial enterprise where more and more people are um, buying up units and, uh, and renting them out through professional management. Um, so it's like Airbnb, it's like mom and pop are now named Marriott, right? Yeah, really. You know, it's like hotel Airbnb is basically what it is. I mean, you, one of the things that we found is that there are entire buildings now that are, um, that are turned over to Airbnb. What's wrong with that, Jack? Well, I, 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 a couple of things. Uh, number one is that you know it's it, they're basically a, a hotel. They're operating as a hotel without having the um, the, the public safety, the um, uh, regulations, uh, the public health, or the revenue that is uh, um, that's supposed to go back to the city, the taxation, the way that regular uh, hotels do. It's also eaten up um, housing stock in uh, in areas. Chinatown is a perfect example, uh, as well as North End, two fairly popular, fairly dense neighborhoods um, where people are being priced out of um, the area because they're being taken over by Airbnb. Is it 100% of it? No, absolutely not. But it's now to the point that there's a significant number of um, uh, commercial units that are being leased out on, uh, being rented out on Airbnb that no longer are available in the long-term uh, rental market. The numbers vary, and, and the story will will say that as well. We have some advocate, housing advocates saying that as many as 4,000 units in the city are now off the books. Uh, Airbnb says, no, it's only about 300, which I think is you know very much underrated. In between that is the city... And they're acknowledging, yeah, there's an impact, and, and we think it's about 1,500 to 2,000 units that are no longer available in the housing stock. Now, the one thing I, I, you have in a sidebar to your story is everybody who watches TV and is of a certain age remembers Anthony. 
what, what's what's up with Anthony? Well, I, I I thought that was the best part of it. I love that piece. Um, now that uh, we should say that was the Prince Spaghetti ad because there are some people listening who may not be of a certain age. Like, that's right. Like Thanks. certain of those of, of us in this <laughs> room. Look it up on YouTube. It's, it's yeah. one of the all-time classics. But um, it, what I found was uh, there was some concern by people over in the North End that this guy Anthony was renting out like uh, 40 or 50 units in the North End. Uh, he has about 80 in the city. There's a picture of Anthony, this clean-cut kid who describes himself as a um, uh, a world traveler. He's in the financial services. Um, he's got you know a very pretty wife or girlfriend. It's unclear which it is, with his arms draped around him. Um, and he just looks like you know uh, a, a normal guy. And you'd like to rent from Anthony. And there's a lot of people that really liked Anthony's places. Well, come to find out, that's a stock picture of Anthony that uh, appeared on. A bail bondsman's website in California, a uh, Washington State dental practice uh, website. I'm shocked. Uh, it, I was as well. <laughs> um, and it, 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 so he really is a world traveler. I mean, <laughs> he all gets over around. the wide web, right? <laughs> and he's a he's a uh, model on the side as well, apparently. But uh, you know, and, and now when you go on the Anthony, it no longer exists. It's a uh, company called Domio. They're a professional management company. But it's it's really interesting in that that's what a lot of uh, these hosts do. They they have uh, false names. They have false pictures when they have multiple uh, um, sites that they're renting. Airbnb says it's an outlier. That's not what I'm finding. Hmm. So I, I have a story in this issue, too, about a, another uh, set of apps. And these are dealing with Uber and Lyft and other ride-hailing apps like that. Um, and when that when that first emerged as a policy-type story on Beacon Hill, a lot of the focus was on what are they doing to taxis and how can taxis compete and what do we need to do, uh, you know, to protect taxis if we need to do anything. But what's happened is that transit agencies like the T, but their counterparts around the country, are seeing that um, that uh, their ridership is down a little bit. And there's a lot of theories about what's happening, but one of them is that Uber and Lyft are having an impact and drawing riders away from the transit agencies and putting them in cars and driving them around the city. And the impact of that is actually sort of surprising because that can add to congestion on the roads, that can increase vehicular traffic and emissions. And it also raises all sorts of issues for the transit agencies, which are trying, they typically plan 30, 40, 50 years out. And now they're looking at these apps. That's other transit agencies that do that, right? Uh, Not- well, <laughs> the T tries to do that too. And, and they talk a lot about 2050 and what, 2040. But um, I think this is, this is a sort of thing that, that's, it, it, it's interesting to me that the, the person at the T who's trying to figure out what's going on is having a monthly call with her counterparts at agencies across the country trying to figure out what's going on. But the simplest thing, why don't we get that information from Uber and Lyft? No one is doing that. It's sort of like this is new technology, the new way of doing business, and we can't you know demand that they supply us with information about what they're doing out there. And so no one really has any good information. It's it's sort of everyone stumbling around the dark about what is going well, on. Well, I, th- I think that's the commonality between the two, between Airbnb and, and you know, these uh, transportation network companies, is that they've, they've put a stake in the ground, they've established themselves 
Um, they have created this industry long before anybody in, in the regulatory uh, agencies, either at the state level or the local level, could do anything about it. So what's happening now is that they're pretty much dictating what what happens. They're dictating the terms of, of but, operations. But why why are the the you know government officials so skittish in both cases about asserting themselves and stepping in and saying, hey, we you know we we make rules around here for how people operate in all sorts of ways. I, I think that's a great question. I, I you know especially in Massachusetts, which everybody will you know say has this reputation of being a nanny state that you know. Um, that, that, as Bill Bulger used to say, slap a tax on a runaway horse. You know, they could do that. And and yet these go on uh, for the time frame that they did before anybody steps in. And I mean, with Airbnb, it's still going on. They still ha don't have anything at the state or the uh, local level. They're actually asking to be regulated, right? It's, no, you know, I don't know they're asking to be regulated. They're asking to be taxed, taxed, you know, right. because that brings some legitimacy right. to it. And that's nothing out of their pocket. I mean, that's going to come out of the uh, people that rent anyway. So... All they're going to be doing is being is play the middleman, but I think it raises the the legitimate question as to, you know, it, why doesn't the state reel them in? Why doesn't the state collect that information from Uber and and Lyft as a, uh, um, as part of the regulatory process that they have? I think it's a, a little bit of a uh, policymakers are a little fearful of of tampering or affecting in a negative way the new economy that's coming along. Obviously, people like Uber and Lyft. Uh, their constituents like it. Consti I think it's a cult myself. <laughs> constituents like Airbnb. And so the um, the prospect of coming in and, and crossing swords with these companies about what they do and how they operate is a bit problematic. And because they've already engendered a following, I think. I think that's one one factor. Um, Michael, you have a story in this issue about a big anniversary. What's up with that? So I took a look uh, at uh, education for this issue, and it turns out that we are now in 2018 uh, in the year uh, that's going to involve celebrating the state's uh, leadership in education in the form of the big Ed Reform Act that was passed in 1993. It was really kind of a forerunner of what's happened federally and in a lot of other states. We laid down a big marker in this state uh, that we were going to provide, you know, a lot more funding to school districts that had been struggling without that funding. And at the same time, we were going to set really rigorous standards for all schools and, and statewide assessments to hold states, hold districts accountable for having kids reach that bar. It was, you know, people referred to it as the grand bargain. We're going to provide a lot of money, but there's going to be real expectations. And the whole gist of it was this idea that if we did that, we could have kids achieving at high levels regardless of the background they come from or the communities they're in. And in some ways, I think you're going to hear a lot of celebration over the coming year because Massachusetts, as we've been told, repeatedly, you know, almost ad nauseum, has rocketed to the top of national rankings on English and math scores, you know, we're the top state without question uh, during this, you know, since since the Ed Reform Law was passed. But the, the sort of unfortunate, uh, you know, inconvenient truth, though, is that these gaps that have existed between kids from poorer families and in poorer districts and wealthier ones have really not budged much at all. The sort of floor has been raised. Everyone's achieving at a higher level. But, but your trajectory in this state still largely is determined by 
you know, your zip code or the socioeconomic status you come from. And that really hasn't changed. And it's led, it's leading to some, some real uh, sort of, you know, questioning of whether we're on the right track. And among the people I talked to for the story, the one I was most sort of struck by uh, his comments was Paul Revel, who had served as the education secretary for about five years under Deval Patrick, but also was very involved in the Ed Reform Act itself in 1993 in pushing for it. And, and, and he believes very much in all its principles. But he has now come to the conclusion that, you know, that, that, that we vastly over, uh, you know, we, we overestimated what it could do in terms of equalizing how kids do. What I, I, what I think is interesting when you talk about the 25th anniversary is, as every, most everybody who is familiar with it knows, it, it was triggered by that suit, um, you know, Brockton uh, suit um, that, uh, and uh, I think it was Hitchcock was, uh, Hitchcock v. Uh, whoever was the um, commissioner at the time. Hancock. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's what triggered the... Um, um, Jack, you're getting into the weeds here. Come I on. Am. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what's happening now is as we're hitting the 25th anniversary, once again, Brockton is uh, leading the charge to, right. to bring another suit against the state um, to, to try to level that playing field once again. You know, basically what they're saying is 25 years later, nothing much has changed. Right. I mean, there is a big funding dimension, and I should maybe almost apologize ahead of time to before all the people start you know, barraging us with emails and complaints that my story doesn't really get into the funding issues. And there is a real question now of whether the funding formula is out of whack. And there's a lot of feeling that it does need revision. I guess I didn't focus on that because I think what Revel and other people are saying is even apart from the funding, we need to rethink how schools operate, especially those that are trying to educate kids that start, you know, start school even already in kindergarten far behind. And he thinks we need to, you know, essentially kind of blow up this model of how schools operate that goes back to agrarian days. We need these kids need longer days. They need a different structure. We need to sort of even organize the way districts operate differently. Some people look to what's been done in Lawrence under the state receivership, where they've really kind of tried to decentralize operations and and put a lot more control at the school level. And and Rebel also says we need to look at all the stuff kids need out of school that that that, that also is contributing to you know, this kind of unevenness in the trajectory kids are on. That was fascinating to me that looking at how kids are um, being brought up outside the schools and, and this sort of revel seems to have this notion that schools can be the entree to, to change that or, or positively the- impact that in some way, which is a, truly a much bigger issue. Right. Uh, I mean, I think he thinks they need to have sort of be in partnership with the broader community. They can't do it alone. And that's why he's working in places like Salem, where the mayor there has kind of made this vow to really try to deploy all the resources of city government, you know, to work with schools, whether it's local community organizations. And, you know, and the other thing that I was really most struck by, I have to say, was the KIPP charter schools, which which have been known for being having this relentless focus on high test scores achievement, they really kind of are sort of represent what the Ed Reform Act was about on steroids, really looking at boosting achievement of kids. And they've done a lot of soul searching to say they're seeing even that kids who score well from poor backgrounds are struggling as they move out of, out of high school in through college. And so they're trying to rethink the kind of supports kids need to make it, you well, know, is that, not just to college, but the new mantra is not to college, but through college. Is it is that part of the problem, though? That, then that you know everything was focused on the testing. No, and I on think the Kip is saying that that that, that it, it's it's too narrow, and 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 a lot of the themes that I kept coming back to in the story were 
things are necessary but not sufficient. Kids do need to have strong competency in math and, and literacy, but by having this measure that we've held schools accountable for so narrowly focused on those, there's been kind of the unintended consequences of schools focusing all their efforts on that, sort of out of fear of the state sanctions that come if they don't do it, but they may not have, you know, critics have said they haven't educated the whole child, they haven't done enough to equip kids in all the ways that you can't just measure on a narrow test for what they'll need. But they, they've been saying that for years, though. Why, why is it taking the 25th uh, anniversary to, to, to get to that point? I mean, I, we've, we've heard even going back to, you know, the original uh, uh, implementation of MCAS tests that, you know, you, it, everybody's going to teach to the test that everything's going to be focused on that. But I think that's part of the problem, Jack. Some people have been saying that. But whenever you bring this issue up about we're too focused on the test, then then it, the worry is that it's going to shift to, like, let's get rid of the it's test. It's a pendulum thing. Yeah, to get rid of it would be send us back to the 1970s where we basically said, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Kids will do how they'll do. And, and that doesn't really seem acceptable either. So I think that's been the, the kind of conundrum. How do you kind of retain the high standards and the focus on getting all kids, you know, up to a high standard that ed reform brought? Because I think that's what people are saying. They don't want to throw out all of the principles of ed reform, but I think there's... I think we're going to see some real uh, efforts in the next few years to rethink, you know, how we may need to sort of recalibrate things. We've got a lot more, a st- lot more stories in this issue as well. Uh, here's a quick rundown of a few of them. Uh, is the turnaround in Worcester for real? How is the legalization of pot, if it happens, given Jeff Sessions' announcement uh, th- this past week, playing in poor and minority neighborhoods? We follow the struggles of two women from Puerto Rico who relocated here with their children in the wake of the devastation caused by Hurricane Maria. How are they doing? We've got a one-on-one interview with Michael Botticelli of the Graken Center at Boston Medical Center. Uh, he's, he's focused on opioid addiction. And we've got a conversation with Yvonne Spicer, a name you may be hearing a lot more about in the future. Who is she, Jack? Well, she's the new mayor of the new city of Framingham. Um, she's the first mayor of the new city of Framingham. She's the first black woman uh, popularly elected uh, as mayor in Massachusetts. So she's a lot of firsts. <laughs> and um, and, and I found her really engaging, really interesting from a lot of angles. She's, she's definitely confident. Whether or not <laughs> that confidence translates into um, performance is another question because, you know, she's coming to this – with um, a real lack of electoral experience, a real lack of administrative experience from a municipal level. I mean, she's she's very accomplished in her field. She's a former teacher. Um, she was a Museum of Science administrator. Uh, but when it came to uh, politics, even though she was, you know, in, engaged in some campaigning as a volunteer, going back to the days of Dukakis, her only elected office prior to winning the mayoral race was as town meeting representative. She was there for one year. And the way that she was elected, which I found you know pretty uh, funny, she told the story. Um, she went to go vote um, that day in 2016, I think. Oh, yeah, 2016. Um, and she noticed that on the precinct for town meeting representative in her uh, precinct, there was a lot of blank spaces. People weren't running. So she said to the um, uh, election clerk, can I write my name in? The election clerk says, sure. She wrote her name in. She went back home, put it out on Facebook. You know, if you haven't voted yet, write in my name. 
she ended up getting like seven votes and was elected, uh, you know, town meeting representative. And that was her entirety of electoral experience prior to running for mayor. And she ran against John Stefanini, who I think a lot of people uh, probably recall was a state rep for years. He was um, an institution in Framingham. He was the uh, a selectman for years, and he was the force behind the uh, Charter Commission. She blew him away. She blew away the whole seven-person uh, primary uh, preliminary field, and she handily won over Stefanini. So, um, you know, she's got a mandate. Uh, whether or not she can carry it out is another question. But I thought that her answers were, you know, very confident, very forthright. Um, and the priorities that she laid out of, of, of housing, of uh, redevelopment of downtown, uh, of transportation um, are all interesting, but they all will cost money. So it's a question, where does that come from? So Framingham goes with a newcomer to politics, just the way the country did with Donald Trump? I mean, it's- <laughs> I'm not sure you can compare Ron Spicer to Donald Trump. Uh, and she may even come in here and beat you for it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she it, it, that may be the thing. It, it, it may be that it's, you know, the new voice, the newcomer. You know, they they, they definitely rejected uh, the, the name that they knew. Um, and, uh, you know, she she's an unknown quantity. Uh, and I think that that's what people like. But I think that, and, and again, I don't want to say, you know, unlike the president, but but she's she's a very articulate, very intelligent, very... Oh, co- go ahead and say it, Jack. <laughs> uh, very no, actually, you do want to say it, Jack. <laughs> okay, so I did. Uh, the one thing they do share is definite confidence. There's no doubt about that. Well, I guess that gives you a tease of next, of the issue that, again, it's coming out tomorrow on our website, and it's going out in the mail tomorrow. Tomorrow being Tuesday, January um, 9th. 9th. The day after today. It, But if people are listening to this on Wednesday, January 10th. Oh, I'm sure everybody listens as soon as it comes out, right? Immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, that's it for today. Uh, Catch us next week, and you can always subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. And I'll leave you with Anthony. That was just well done. Beautiful.